All right, good afternoon, Sheepgate Fellowship. Welcome to Sunday, May 17th, 2020. This is our um, third week. Is it third Sunday already in the month of May? We are continuing our sermon series on the figure of David this month, and we are looking continuously at 1 Samuel, and we're going to be looking today at 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1 to 22. So if you have a Bible with you, hopefully you do, uh, open it up, and we're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1 to 22. I'll read from my Bible, and you can follow along. I don't think I've mentioned this since we started live streams, but I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible, so the NASB. Uh, so if you have a different version of the Bible that's slightly variant, uh, that's probably the reason. Uh, but if you have a digital Bible, you can always switch over to the NASB and follow along with me word for word. So let's look at 1 Samuel 24, verse 1 to 22. And today we're looking at the story of David sparing the, sparing the life of Saul. A uh, very famous story uh, that has conjured uh, many, many different um, psalms and songs regarding this uh, relent, relenting or restraining of David and um, his sparing of Saul's life. And so I'm sure it's a story you've heard before if you've grown up in the church. If it's your first time hearing it, it's a good one. So let's read it. First Samuel 24 verse 1 to 22. This is what the word of God says. Now when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told saying, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. He came to the sheepfolds on the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. The men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I am about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. It came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. So he said to his men, Far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, since he is the Lord's anointed. David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul arose, left the cave, and went on his way. Now afterward, David arose and went out the cave and called after Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men, saying, Behold, David seeks to harm you. Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord had given you today into my hand and in the cave. And some said to kill you, but my eye had pity on you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for, the Lord, uh, for he is the Lord's anointed. Now my father, see, indeed, see the edge of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you. No one perceived that there is no evil or rebellion in my hands, and I have not sinned against you. Though you are lying in wait for my life to take it, may the Lord judge between, me, between you and me, and may the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you. As a proverb of the ancients says, says, Out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A single flea? The Lord therefore be judge and decide between you and me. And may he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. When David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have dealt well with me, while I have dealt wickedly with you. You have declared today that you have done good to me. But the Lord delivered me into your hand, and yet you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy 
Will he let him go away safely? May the Lord therefore reward you with good in return for what you have done to me this day. Now behold, I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. So now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's household. David swore to Saul and Saul went, his, went to his home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. Amen. This is the word of God. We're going to be praying for our unreached people group of the day. They come from, yet again, India. They are the Bowie. 6.288 million of these people, brothers and sisters. That's nearly the population of the GTA. 0% Christian. 0% evangelical. Spread all across the nation of India. We want to pray for these people. Their salvation and missional efforts to be uh, done on behalf of the Bowie of India. We also want to continue to pray this Sunday for the reality of the COVID-19 and coronavirus pandemic across the globe as it is starting to hit Brazil pretty hard as we prayed for last week, the president. Um, he continues in his very stubborn position of denying coronavirus treatment for his people and any kind of national lockdown, whether you agree or disagree with that. Uh, clearly, he's not, doing any, he's not making any effort to help them. So we want to continue to pray for Brazil this afternoon and pray for the safety and well-being of the people of Brazil. Why don't we pray together this afternoon? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the words of 1 Samuel 24, 1-22. We pray that through the story that we are given today, this narrative of David and Saul, their interaction and contention and difficulty and strife, that we see in this story the grace of Jesus Christ extended to us on the cross. Heavenly Father, would you help the people of Brazil as they are uh, going through a rise in not only infections but deaths and the people are crying out for help and they are receiving none from their authorities. So Father, would we uh, this day be in prayer not only for their physical well-being but for their spiritual well-being. We pray, Lord, for the church of Brazil to be a voice of the gospel and to make Jesus renowned in that nation so those people would hear and know the truth of Jesus Christ. Lord, we also pray for um, the Bowie of India, and we pray, Lord Father, for this people group, unreached completely, none of them Christian, that the Church of India and the Church globally would put efforts together to be evangelistic and missional on behalf of these people to preach the gospel to them. And would you watch over and care for them so that they too would know the saving message of Jesus Christ. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to thank you once again for joining us this afternoon in worship. And if you're watching the recording, wherever you are, whenever you are watching this, we welcome you as well. If it's your first time joining us, we welcome you and we want to thank you for joining us this day. We are doing a year-long sermon series on figures of scripture, one figure per month. We've looked at Adam and Eve, we looked at Abraham, we've looked at Moses and Noah and, and figures such as these. And this month we're at David, King David. And we've already looked at two instances of David's story. Uh, one in which he was anointed as the next king of Israel very early in his life. Then we skipped over the Goliath story and we went into last week's story of this tension that begins to brew between Saul and David as Saul begins to make David an enemy. And today we see a very interesting story or we have read a very interesting story in which David spares the life of Saul. 
There are two such stories, 20, chapter 24 and then the second instance in chapter 26. So this happens twice. This is what I want you to know. In today's text, we observe an extraordinary act of humility and faith by David. Some might argue that David's greatest victory, if you just ask someone, you know, randomly in church, what's David's greatest victory? What's his greatest achievement? Many, I think, would argue that it was his battle against Goliath or his victories over the Philistine armies or the retrieval of the Ark of the Covenant or perhaps his many other victories in battle over neighboring nations or even the beginning of the construction and the idea and the blueprinting of the temple of God. His resume is littered with lifetime achievement honors and successful victories that are badges of renowned national hero, of a renowned national hero. He has all the hallmarks of such. But to me, what makes David extraordinary, and maybe after this sermon, you will agree with me, is not only and simply what he did and accomplished in life, but what also he didn't do. Right? See, a lot of times our Christian life is motivated by doing, because that's the language of the world. Do, 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 right? But what the Bible also celebrates is what you don't do. Namely, sin. Our whole sermon series began with Adam and Eve in a garden told, work the grounds, take care of one another, name these animals, have authority, be fruitful and multiply, but don't touch the tree. Don't eat of it. Right? Today is one such story. It is equally a narrative and story of great battle and victory, although there is no such thing. There is no actual battle here. But it is a victory not over a physical foe or a physical enemy or even an obvious enemy. King David's victory here, although he's not yet king, is over his own selfish ambition, his urgency to end his torture and his struggle in trusting God. Let me read Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 to you. This is the words of Paul to the church of Ephesus. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world uh, forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Our battle, brothers and sisters, is a principle of the flesh. It is a spiritual battle within us that compels us to sin. In Numbers chapter 20, Moses is old in his age. He's wise in his years. He's come a long way since the burning bush. He had been through it all, so to speak, and has led his people out of slavery. And he's headed, he's headed towards the promised land. It has been a long and arduous journey. And yet in a single moment in this story, in this chapter, all will be taken from Moses for an act that defied God and placed Moses as the provider for Israel. At least he placed himself as the provider. Moses may have just slipped up, made a mistake, made an error in the moment, and some may, may argue that it's unfair. But it is a cautionary tale for you and I today that first and foremost, all people are prone to prideful sin. And all people and their sin and their sins are punishable before the Lord, no matter who commits it. No matter who commits it. You could say, well, Moses was such an obedient servant until that point. Why does God have to hold that against him? Because all sins and sinners are punishable before the Lord. 
Moses acted that day in Numbers 20 in anger over his circumstance. He acted in frustration with his people. And he acted in faithlessness before God. Sure, when he struck that rock, the rock poured out water for the Israelites to drink. But Moses took matters into his own hands that day. Rather than doing what he usually did, and in the first instance when, the rock, when, uh, when he struck a rock and, and water poured out of it, he did not seek God and he did not seek God's word. Today, in our story in 1 Samuel 24, in a very unideal situation, with a mighty opposition in Saul and an absolutely silent God, David acts in humility and in faith. So I have three points to today's sermon. The first point is this. David is humble before his enemy. David is humble before his enemy. My second point is this. David is humble before his circumstance. David is humble before his circumstance. And the third and final point is this. David is humble before God. David is humble before God. So David is humble before his enemy. David is humble before his circumstance. David is humble before God. What great use of alliteration. Thank you, Ontario uh, schooling, for teaching me these things. First point, David is humble before his enemy. What we can observe in today's text is not a David being prepared for the throne. It's not a David who is facing a mighty warrior or an army in battle, so to speak. It's not an army, it's not an army he wants to fight. And it's not even a David that is being celebrated for some great act of achievement or victory. Look at his situation. He's in a cave. He's hiding for his life. He has no certainty of the future. The only thing he has is an anointing given to him by the word of God in the hands of Samuel the prophet. That's it. He was once told, right? Uh, Nearly 10 chapters ago. Hey, you're going to be the king. You're going to be the next king of Israel. Right? And nothing seems like it's headed there in the moment. Nothing. No certainty other than the word of God and the anointing he received on that day. That's it. That's his hope. The word of God. Now I say it a little bit sarcastically, but brothers, that's it. Sisters, that's the hope. Your hope is not your circumstance. I don't care if you are living it up, like your Christian life is excelling and you're thriving. Your hope is not what you're enduring right now. This life means nothing. It means absolutely nothing in terms of the destination. It has no relation. There's no correlation between the success and non-success of our lives, the abundance and non-abundance of our lives, the thriving or non-thriving our lives in terms of the destination. Look at David. He's going to be king of Israel. Does it look like he's going to be the king of Israel? By chapter 24, it certainly does not. Our hope, brothers and sisters, is truly solely on the word of God. The throne is supposedly his, yet there, there he is in a cave in the middle of nowhere with the current king of Israel chasing him down with 3,000 of Israel's greatest warriors. Let's talk about these 
opening verses. I want to talk about the first seven. Verse one, En Gedi. I'm a Star Wars fan. This just sounds like a Star Wars planet, doesn't it? En Gedi. I don't even know if I'm reading it right, but that's the way it's got to be pronounced. En Gedi, right? Sounds like tattooing or something. Anyways, En Gedi was an ideal location for David to hide. Why? Because it's in a stark contrasted area in the wilderness of what we call Ziph. Engedi is located on the western shore of the Dead Sea, and it's highlighted by its, by its rich vineyards, its rich vegetation, and fresh water, very unlike the desert in which the surrounding area is. The area is also abundant in limestone, and if you're familiar with limestone, it creates crevices and caves in surrounding areas, which David could easily hide in from Saul and his army. So there he is. He's in a cave and he's hiding. He's probably writing Psalm something, right? One of the Psalms is being written at this moment. Verse 2. In his bitter pursuit of David, Saul, once the hero of his armies, David, Saul selects an elite class of 3,000 men. Brothers and sisters, does he need 3,000 of Israel's greatest warriors to hunt down one man? No, he doesn't. This is total exaggeration, right? Not the, not the text. I mean, like, on Saul's end, his choice, right? He wants to make sure David gets killed and crushed. On the other hand, he did see David slay a giant Philistine. So maybe he's a little bit of afraid. Anyways, he gathers 3,000 of Israel's greatest soldiers to hunt down David with him. This is an excessive amount, but demonstrative of Saul's eagerness to kill David. He is mad with rage. Or maybe fear. He really wants to kill David. I want to make that clear. He really wants to kill him. Now, it's not certain where the rock of the wild goats is, but brothers and sisters, does that not sound like a really cool place to visit? I'm going to go visit the rock of the wild goats. Anyways, the wild goats in this particular uh, phrasing and this name of this area just simply references and indicates the extreme difficulty of access to this area. That's why David chose it as a hiding place. Verse 3, Saul went to relieve himself, and relieve himself is something that we do today, and it sounds exactly like what it is. He went to pee, or poo, or whatever, right? He went to relieve himself in a cave. Now, in the correct modern English euphemism, we use relieve himself as well, or relieve ourselves as well. The equivalent in, he in the Hebrew euphemism here is actually to cover one's feet. This saying was used to explain bowel movements that occurred in our bodies and the need to use the washroom, essentially. One would quite literally, in those days, because they're all in robes, crouch down, thus hiding their feet, covering their feet as they peed. Right? So that's what Saul's doing. He's on the ground, his kingly robe, which would have been huge, is laid across the ground, and he's peeing. In verse 4, David's companions deduce the immediate and seemingly obvious conclusion. Now, Pause. If I was David's friend in this cave, and I'm like, I'm being hunted down by this guy, and I'm, I'm, I'm hungry, I'm homesick, like, this is no fun, I could die, and here comes this king. Okay, first of all, I would laugh. I'd be like, are you serious? Are you serious? This is how this battle ends? This is how this enemy gets defeated? This dude's going to be peeing and we just kill him? This is great, right? First of all, I would laugh. And secondly, I would do exactly what they did to David or told David. Kill him. <laughs> right? He's right there. At the very least, capture him. Use him as a hostage. Let's go home. This is it. This is the gift. Right? That's what I would have deduced. That's the obvious conclusion, isn't it? Here, here is the Lord delivering your enemy right into your hands, David. 
But on David's end, look what he's look look how he thinks. It's so different from us. And brothers and sisters, we've lost this. And sometimes we look at Job and we find Job's response to tragedy and suffering so extraordinary. Right? How could Job endure that and still praise God? Wow, that's amazing. And we have so many sermons and songs about this. I'm not trying to diminish the extraordinary extraordinary character and, and virtue of these men and actions of these men. But I want to make this clear, brothers and sisters. What do you expect from a man of God? Do you expect anything less? See, we are baffled and astonished by people like David and Job because we see none of this in our own life. There's been no indication for David from God, from his prophet, that the intention to put David on the throne included the intention and plan to have Saul killed by David. No such plan or indication has been made to David. So to David, he views this not as an opportunity to end his misery, but perhaps more like a test. Verse 5, many would argue David exercised great restraint this day, Great patience in not striking down Saul. They would be right, I would think. Because I think David probably had an inkling to do so. And let's be honest. Many of us, if not all of us, would have killed Saul that day. But David grieves even over touching the robe of Saul. He grieves and regrets over cutting a piece of his robe off. Does not rest well with him, it says in verse 5. Verse 6, David's concern stems from his honoring of God as the one who placed Saul as the king. So, what I find extraordinary about David is his wisdom in this moment. He is able to see the God above the throne, the God over earthly thrones the king above all kings he's able to see that and he is the one the God who will one day make David king has promised to make him the next king and maybe David is afraid that people if in that moment he kills and slays Saul and And he goes and marches back into Israel and says, Look, I've defeated the current king. Now I'm the king. Maybe if he does that, maybe David is afraid that people will credit David for taking the throne rather than crediting God for giving David the throne to him. See how he's thinking? Isn't that extraordinary? Any one of us promised the throne would have slain Saul, right? But David is thinking, who gets glory in the end? 
Is it going to be me or is it going to be God? And he, he's able to calculate so quickly in that moment. If I kill Saul, sure, I end up on the throne. Sure, that promise is fulfilled. Sure, maybe I am the active hands that fulfill the promise of God and the anointing of God over my life. But in that moment, he's able to calculate and think like an Israelite and say, if I march back to Israel with Saul's head, everyone's going to say, praise David the king who has taken his throne instead of praise God who has given it to him. What an extraordinary, extraordinary thought that we are so immature to even think in these moments. So in David's perspective, the only hand that should remove Saul from the throne is God's hand, not his own. Now in this moment, if God cried out in the cave and said, David, kill him, then that's it. You do it. That's obedience. But note the silence of God. Note the silence of God. Verse 7, David also restrains his own servants and soldiers. I put myself in this position and I say, David, you're not going to kill him, then I will. <laughs> and David says, no. Demonstrating yet again his humble leadership. Is that a pep talk for you? Hey guys, we're not killing him. I know he's right in front of us. We're not killing him. We're going to keep running and hiding. Sorry. I know you're hungry and tired, but we're going to keep doing this. Thank you for following, by the way. <laughs> you see, brothers and sisters, the extraordinary thing here is that David is hanging on to the word of God as he faces his supposed enemy. His restraint in not striking Saul down is a refusal to equate the presence of opposition as a denial of the promise of God. If God said he would take the throne from Saul and give it to David, then David knows that it is God who will and must do this in accordance with his promise. He trusts in God's word. The plan was not given to him that he is to go and take the throne from Saul. After all, immediately after receiving that anointing as the next king of Israel, what happens in David's life? The spirit of God mightily comes upon David. We examined that last week. David is then immediately hired as Saul's personal harp musician to soothe his soul of an evil spirit. He then, in the very next chapter, is conquering Goliath and is tasked to take down one of the greatest challengers in Israeli battle history on behalf of Saul the king. In both cases, if David just simply left the evil spirit to torment Saul, maybe that evil spirit might have driven him to madness and to his death. Or maybe if David just refused and did not accept the challenge of Goliath to defeat uh, to defeat him, then maybe Goliath in the end takes the Philistine army and conquers Saul and just, just wrecks him. And what does that leave, brothers and sisters? In both cases, whether the man is driven to madness or whether Goliath kills him, an empty throne for David to take. But David does not. See, we're so selfish when God promises something to us, we can't wait for it to happen. If, David, if God made you king, you know what you would have done? I'm going to let Goliath kill Saul and then I'll kill Goliath. Then I'll have the throne right now. I don't want to categorize all of us in the same boat. But that's me. That's what I would have done. Yet, brothers and sisters, it is David that preserves and prolongs the reign of Saul. 
he prolongs the reign of Saul's kingship. Isn't that crazy? And here in the midst of a moment where the fruit is ripe for the picking, David holds back. Many times we're so anxious to remove the source of our misery and our strife that we fail to exercise wise judgment and to stand on God's word. It is not to say that there is never a time to act, but it is also to say that it is not always the wise thing to do. What I get out of this is David stands on God's word. He is humble before his enemy. Point number two, David is humble before his circumstance. Having restrained himself and others from taking action against Saul, David does not rise to boast of his accomplishment or to even look down on Saul by taunting him. His response is to plead for Saul's love. He wants Saul to see his heart. He wants his enemy to see his heart. And he wants love to be exchanged. Isn't that extraordinary? Verse 8, David is more anxious here to be received by Saul, and he demonstrates not boasts of his sparing of Saul. How does he do this? He shows Saul the, the, the torn robe. He wants to show Saul he loves and respects him as God's anointed and as his national king. David could easily rub this in, right? Again, that's what I would have done. I would have just I would have been like, yo, Saul, I could have killed you, bro. But he doesn't. David could easily have done this. He could have demonstrated and flaunted in Saul's face. Look at my higher ethics. I'm better than you. He could have taunted Saul on that day. That you're only alive because of me. Saul, you're only king because of me. But David thinks more than I do. He knows Saul is king and alive because of God. That's it. But David physically lowers himself and puts himself in a prostrated posture, demonstrating his inner humility outwardly towards Saul. Again, both parties well aware that David will only, will one day, of course, inhabit that throne. They're both aware of this. But think about it. The next king humbling himself in prostrated form before the current king trying to kill him. Isn't that extraordinary? Verse 9, where David did not listen to his own men in their counsel to strike Saul down. Saul is looking to strike David down at the counsel of his own men. David pleads for the ceasing of Saul's listening to the counsel of these men. Look, I didn't listen to my dudes. You stop listening to your dudes. David knows Saul well. He wisely looks to put the emphasis and focus on the truthful reality of the poor wisdom of Saul's men rather than attacking Saul's own foolishness. Because why? David knew Saul's pride was too great. Saul could see his foolishness better through the means of realizing the foolishness of the men around him. So David attacks Saul's pride, or let's say addresses his pride, in a manner 
which is most conducive of Saul's realization of that pride. David's concern then, I might argue, is not his own life being spared or the taunting of Saul's life being spared. It's Saul's repentance. It's Saul's turning from evil and no longer being under condemnation. I truly believe this as I've been studying 1 Samuel. I really think David wanted to see Saul change. Not dead, not removed, not thrown away, not quickly forgotten. I think he really wanted to see his king as a godly man. He leaves that, however, in the decision and in the hands of God where it rightfully belongs. Brothers and sisters, when I read something like this, is this not Christian rebuke in its best form? We throw this term around, right? Rebuke. Oh, Paul rebuked the church. So-and-so rebuked. This guy rebukes. That guy rebukes. Someone rebuked me. You know what? Honestly, the equivalent of Christian rebuke today is just someone told me something that hurt my feelings. <laughs> right? But it's just, when we see Christian rebuke in the Bible, like biblical rebuke, it's harsh. It cuts to the chase. It hits us where it hurts, but it does so for the intention of change. And it does so from a motivation of love. That's what's absent in our modern rebuke. A motivation of love and an outcome, and a desired outcome of transformation. What we truly want to do when we rebuke is just point out that someone is messing up. And we like to lift up that cut piece of robe and flaunt it in front of them. That's our pride. That's not humility. If you really love your brother, then you will really want them to not sin. If you really love your sister, you will tell them the truth in love. That's Christian rebuke. And look how David does it in the most magnificent of ways. Verse 10, David chose not to strike down and kill Saul. But do not confuse David's reasoning here in verse 10, as many have done. I've heard this verse used by many Christian leaders, including pastors today, who say this. Look at 1 Samuel 24, 10. David didn't kill Saul. David didn't strike him down. David didn't do these things. So you shouldn't say anything bad about me. Leaders, leaders, listen, please. You are not, you are not immune to rebuke. Let me, let me clarify even more. You need rebuke. You need correction. You need criticism. And you need accountability. David chose not to strike down and kill Saul. But do not confuse this and his reasoning to imply that all Christian leaders anointed by God are to be treated with complete immunity from criticism, rebuke, correction, and accountability. Do not kill your leaders, okay? When they're peeing, don't kill them, okay? Even if they're trying to kill you, do not kill your Christian leaders. Don't go to your pastor and be like, you know what, like, I don't like you, I'm supposed to kill you. <laughs> None of that stuff, okay? 
There's no killing of leaders. But certainly, we are to assess everyone in the body in love for the sake of their sanctification. Every member of the body, including our leaders. David may not have laid a hand on Saul that day, but he hit Saul where it hurt most. That was his pride. But he did it in such grace and love. Verse 11 in verses 8 and 13 of chapter 22, Saul assumes that David is after his life and his throne. You can go back two chapters before, before read verses 8 and 13. Saul is convinced that David is trying to kill him. Right? That's why he's trying to kill David. David proves in this particular moment that, uh, that this assumption is completely wrong. And he shows Saul, here, here's the cut piece of your robe, indicating, hey, in the cave, I could have killed you. Right? And here was my restraint in killing you. Saul is trying to kill him, yet he did not respond in the same behavior. And even though the perfect opportunity had seemingly arised, right? Verses 12 to 15. This is interesting for us. David knows that the only sound voice of reason and judgment over this situation is not his, is not Saul's or anyone else. It's the voice of God. And so he alludes to God's judgment over his claims. He says, let God be the judge of my character and my claim in front of you, King Saul. Verse 13, David eagerly wants Saul to see that his intentions are free of wicked motivation and malice. Verse 14, David articulates his low stature before the God that is rightfully the judge above both Saul and above David. Again, a recognition of the king above all kings. Verse 15, David could have ended his misery at that exact moment, just like I would have, by killing Saul. But he instead puts his trust in God and his word that this suffering, this trial, this strife, this particular circumstance will, will indeed end. Why? Because me being on the throne does not mean that Saul is still trying to kill me. It means Saul's gone in some way. So David knows the conclusion. What he's looking at is in the circumstance. He's saying, look, I already know what's going to happen. But in this particular moment, I need to trust God, even though it is a source of the greatest misery of my life. He knows it will and will end on God's terms rightfully. Brothers and sisters, we know that one day we will be with Jesus forever. Your misery right now will end someday. That misery doesn't carry on into heaven. It doesn't. No more tears. So cry them now while you can. Before a circumstance that poses a threat against his life and the promise of God not being fulfilled seemingly on the horizon, David does not force the issue to put himself on the throne. David is clearly not eager in this regard, nor is he anxious to be king. His focus is on the love of his current king and his God. Where Saul acts to prevent God's promise for David, David ironically does not act to make certain those promises. David takes God at his word and instead chooses to do what is most godly in the moment that he's in. His focus is on the now, not so much the later. 
Brothers and sisters, David is humble in his circumstance. Point number three, final point. David is humble before God. In these last verses, what we see is the effect of David's compassion over Saul and David's love. Remember his music and his harp playing? It soothed Saul in his madness. And his words have the same effect. Verses 16 to 19. Saul realizes surprisingly, at least surprisingly for me, uh, the reality of the situation. Non-violent and non-malicious intent of David's heart against him. And he weeps. He weeps in this realization. Not that, oh my goodness, I'm so happy my life was saved. He weeps at the corruption of his heart and the realization of David's goodness to him. And so, brothers and sisters, is truly the state of the one who realizes their own sins. My prayer for you all is that if you do grieve, and if you do have great pain in your life, that it would not be over circumstance, but rather it would be over your sins. Saul acknowledges the superior righteousness of David and the inferior state of his own morality. Saul truly realizes the restraint of David and his grace extended to him that day. Would any of you have blamed David for striking him down? I wouldn't. He is supremely grateful for the sparing of his life. In a sense, Saul, in a very minuscule way, is experiencing, I think, what happens when, the, when a person, a sinner, comes to know Jesus Christ. That your life has been spared on the cross. Just like how David would play his harp to soothe Saul's heart, His words on this day in these verses have had a similar effect on Saul and one that has even drawn, at least momentarily, a state of repentance. Verse 20, Saul was a bitter man who knew he had lost his throne. Remember how he desperately clinged on to Samuel and said, please, how can I make this right? And he was trying everything in his power to keep his throne. It was a throne he had not earned, not won, but was simply given graciously by God. But he's so bitter, he cannot see it done for another man. He wants to claim it for himself. Kind of reminded of the older brother in the prodigal son story. That he cannot celebrate that younger brother returning home. And instead is looking at what he does not have and what he cannot have. And it was a throne he could not relinquish to the authority of the same God that placed him there. If God put him there, God certainly has the right to put another there. So Saul realizes in this moment in verse 20, what I think Jonathan, his own son, realized back in chapter 23. That David is surely, surely a man after God's own heart. As Samuel declared very early on, Saul sees that David is the rightful second king of Israel this day. 
And then the final two verses, 21. Saul seeks after future protection from harm. It was common in those times, in that region, that a new royal family would abolish the previous or former, former royal family. They would rid themselves of any potential threats to the throne, any act of rebellion. Saul wants David's promise that this will not be the case. Now, let me tell you how foolish this request is, okay? Although I understand Saul's position. I understand Saul and his fear. So I don't blame him for saying this. But think about how dumb this is. This dude, this kid, didn't even kill you. You think he's going to kill Jonathan? Or your grandkids? Or your wives? Some could see this as a superficial and selfish act. A request that in the moment seems pitiful. But would it surprise you? Or does it surprise you that Saul said this? Perhaps he's seeking after the safety of Jonathan and the rest of his family, which is noble. Now, whatever the case, it's a failure to grasp the fact that David did not even kill him when the chance arose. Why then would David go and act against Saul's family? Saul is projecting earthly patterns of behavior, his own selfishness, his own pride onto David. Saying, if I was David, this is what I would do. And perhaps his own methods. And upon David, as he projects those things, But the reality is that David would not do what Saul would do. And David would certainly not be the king or a king that other kings are. Remember very early on when Israel wanted a king and they went to Samuel and they requested a king for their nation? Remember their request? Israel wanted to what? Look like the other nations. Right? Well, I'm not going to say that God's being humorous here but in a really weird way he's being humorous at least to me i responded in humor so think about it israel goes to god and says god god we want a king we want to look like them (laughs) right and god says okay here's saul (laughs) right here's the king you want here's the king that's going to be like that dude and that dude and that dude and that dude and your nation will be like them 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 and them Have fun. Now, I'm not saying that's what God did. I'm just saying I read it very humorously like that. So, bravo, you got Saul. He looked like other kings. Tyrannical, selfish, totally self-absorbed. But brothers and sisters, Scripture is clear, Romans 12.1. Our call is to not look like the other nations. The church is not to look like the non-churched. To not look like the world, but to be looked at by the world as a standard of morality and godly character. That's what David is. Verse 22, regardless, David takes on the oath that Saul requests. He, He gives his oath. He gives his allegiance and promise. He gives his word to Saul. Something that David would continue to honor, even though in chapter 26, Saul tries to kill him again. If you go to 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 7, here's the evidence. Saul's grandkid does some stupid stuff, comes before David. David's supposed to kill him. David does not. I don't even want to say the name. It's so hard to read. Mephiboseth. I'm going to just call this dude Seth. He He got spared. 
Just like Saul did. Saul's grandson. Why? Because David is a man of his word. What I am astonished by in these verses is David's adherence to Saul's request and David's continual love for this man. Later in the story, Saul will again try to kill David as I explained earlier and David again will restrain from killing Saul. What jumps out to me is that David has perspective in life. He has a certain lens on life. He may not always see the world correctly because he too is a sinner. But in times like these, he certainly does. Right? He does not see his circumstance. He does not see his enemies. He does not see these things as reasons to turn away from God. He sees them as reasons to turn to God. He does not see those things in his life as evidence of a God distant from him or God absent from him in that moment. Note that God does not say a single word in this chapter to David. And yet because David was a man after God's own heart, he knew exactly where God's heart would be. He just knew. He knew what to do without ever hearing a word from God because he knew God. You have a friend like that? You have a friend where you're not around? Let's say like some dudes or some people in your life want to buy you a birthday gift, but they have no idea what to get you. So they go to your best friend and they say, hey, you, person you, what would person B like for their birthday? They're not around. They're not telling you what they want. They haven't said a single word. But you being the best friend, knowing everything about that person, you can confidently say, this is what that person would want. Why? Because you know and you love them. Brothers and sisters, when we love and know and, and truly, truly have our hearts after God, it's obvious. It's obvious what God would want. That's what Jesus says. If you love me, you will obey me. This is the kind of faith and humility we must seek in our own lives. So in conclusion, I just have a couple things I want to say. But I think they're really important. Because I know we're in a season of coronavirus and everyone's having these mental breakdowns and difficulties and emotional ups and downs and swings. And I'm going through them too. We're all going through them. That's what, that's what happens when we're enclosed in our homes. That's why God made me an extrovert. Because I think it's just better. I'm just kidding. Introverts, I love you all. But what I'm saying is, this is clearly not the way that humanity is supposed to be. We're supposed to interact and have these things and have fresh air and have freedom to do these things, right? To gather and be together. That's what relationships do. They help us in our spiritual, emotional, and mental conditions. In many moments of our own lives, just like right now, we typically default to the thinking Look at all this crap that's happening on, around in the world. Look at all this junk that's happening in my life. And here's our default mode of thinking. We think if God is good and God loves me and God loves us, then all he would ever want for me and for us is to experience good things. And nothing would ever bring me pain. He would never do that to me. If God is for me, then I must take every opportunity in my life, even to the point of seeking it out on my own accord, to resolve and rid myself of all pain in my life. If God wants me to be victorious, then He will give me every chance to overcome every struggle, and I must be removed from all torment at all costs, no matter what. That is what make, that's what makes God good. That's our default mode of thinking. Brothers and sisters, that's a sinful way of thinking because here's the reality. In the midst of a suffering life, and even though we think these things, and yet, let me, let, me, let me just give you the solution and answer to this. He sends Jesus. That's the way we think, and yet, He sends Jesus. Who came, incarnated on earth, in human form, 
to be the solution to our greatest problem, sin. Essentially, ourselves and our nature. And he came, and look what he did. He went towards, not away, to a cross of death. The source of pain and suffering and torment. So great, so great, that the Son of God Himself, the second person of the Trinity, in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night of His arrest, would look to the Father and say, Take this cup from me, if it be your will. Would you let it pass? And He died. He suffered and he died, he breathed his last on our behalf. I think it is truly appropriate that Jesus' destination was the source of his greatest pain, rather than demonstrating that godly life is the absence of such pain. This gives meaning to our pain. Perhaps this realization is what we need today, brothers and sisters. Sentiments echoed by Christians past and present. Tim Keller, suffering is actually at the heart of the Christian story. St. Augustine, God had one son on earth without sin, but never one without suffering. C.S. Lewis, we were promised sufferings. They were part of the program. We were even told, blessed are they that mourn. Martin Luther, they gave our master a crown of thorns. Why do we hope for a crown of roses? Elizabeth Elliot, we want to avoid suffering, death, sin, ashes. But we live in a world crushed and broken and torn. A world God himself visited to redeem. We receive his poured out life and being allowed the high privilege of suffering with him. May then pour ourselves out for others. Charles Spurgeon, many men owe the grandeur of their lives to their tremendous difficulties. John Piper, this is God's universal purpose for all Christian suffering, more contentment in God and less satisfaction in the world. And finally, the Bible itself, the Apostle Paul, Romans 5, 3 to 5. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts, through the Holy Spirit, who is given to us. If David, in a sense, is the forerunner to Christ, and Jesus, the Davidic Messiah, the son of David, the king of David, in David's household, and greater than even David himself, as Hebrews would teach us, then what we can deduce and compare here is the humility of David in his situation and the humility of Jesus. So here are the three things. That he would, in his circumstance, take on suffering, Jesus. That he, in the face of his enemy, would love. And that he would, in his greatest trial, be faithful to the will of the Father. That's Jesus and David demonstrated in chapter 24 today. Rather than succumbing to the ridicule and mockery of his name, as he scorned him and told him, hey, why don't you save yourself if you really are the son of God? Instead, he would die on our behalf that we may be saved. He didn't save himself. David wasn't consumed with getting on the throne, for he knew God would put him there on the right day. And Jesus wasn't consumed with getting back to his rightful throne because he knew that hour. So finally, there is a lesson to be had here. And it is simply this. And I don't mean to diminish your suffering or pain if it hurts. It's okay that it hurts. It should hurt. It hurt Jesus too. Your pain, brothers and sisters, has purpose. 
But your faith in the midst of that pain will be greatly rewarded. So God bless you this day. God bless you this week. And let us go into a time of prayer as we seek the Lord and we reflect on the Word of God. Let's pray.